The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies. Benchmark is setting a new standard as Boston's fastest growing public affairs consulting firm. To know more, connect with Benchmark on Twitter at Benchmark Boston. This week on The Horse Race, we're talking about women in the legislature. Then we're looking at potential changes to residency requirements for Boston employees. It's Thursday, December 15th. Hey, everybody. If you can't get enough of politics, policy, elections, and 38% more horse race puns, have we got a job for you. We're hiring for a producer for this year's podcast, and we want to hear from you. Send us your resume at info at massingpolling.com. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, here this week with Jennifer Smith. Our good friend and beloved co-host Lisa Kashinsky will be joining us a bit later to talk about women in the legislature, but we've got some big news to get to up here at the front. The Green Line extension is actually running. There are trains moving down the track and people on them. I was so moved and delighted. It got my cold little heart, like like a little, speaking of green, I guess, like the Grinch, my heart swelled multiple uh, sizes. The number of people that showed up to ride a train. Yeah, just like waking up super early. <laughs> just really <laughs> gotta, nice. <laughs> gotta be one of the train pioneers, I guess. Um, but it is exciting. You know, the Green Line extension is something that, We've at least been talking about, if not waiting for, if not planning for, building for decades. So to actually have it running is nice. Um, I'll save my take for some other time about <laughs> the worst possible form of transit. And yet this is the only thing we've expanded. Um, but it is nice that it's done. Steve's out here just personally laying some tracks like a cartoon villain uh, to try and reroute the train to some kind of different place in the yes, city. Yes, I myself will bring the Orange Line to Melrose. I will do it. There's already a track. I'm going to just run it right up here to Wyoming Hill. Oh, my gosh. Well, I had such a an insane flashback to, uh, if you can believe it, the year of 2018, uh, which was the first year of the horse race. So uh, mazel to everyone who was involved at that point. But uh, a name that doesn't really pop up that much anymore, but is integrally tied into the Green Line extension is that of former Congressman Mike Capuano. So uh, in kind of launching the Green Line extension, uh, Governor Charlie Baker specifically shouted out the former congressman who spent an awful lot of time trying to get exactly this extension out to this place. So that was that was kind of a, a strange what year is it moment for me. 2018, yes, a very important year in the history of the horse race. Also an echo of what was just an absolutely wild race that year, of course, Congressman Mikey, Michael Capuano and now Congresswoman Ayanna Presley squaring off in, in that particular year. So in a little bit, we're going to be talking with Lisa about women in the legislature, but we have some other electoral news to get to first. And that, of course, is polls. There are polls coming out for 2024 already. It's still only Steve. 2022. Do you have little twinkles in your eyes whenever you get one of those little news briefs going across the hell site timeline here? Did the Wall Street Journal tell you anything today? (laughs) 
I think it did. I mean, it's one. It's the time when a lot of people get anxious about like, why are we already doing polls on 2024? It's only 2022. <laughs> and there definitely is something to be said for that. Um, nobody should see these as predictive. Nobody should see like, oh my gosh, the margin between DeSantis and Trump was 15 and therefore it's going to be a big win for DeSantis. But what did happen was that there was a Wall Street Journal poll coming out. It did have a margin in the teens for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump. And that tells me that there's interest in somebody other than Donald Trump. And that, I think, is the notable thing about it. We shouldn't see them as predictive, but it does tell us that there's something going on within the Republican Party that if you look back even a couple months was not there. Um, and that's just interest in potentially electing somebody else, you know, and I think that there's a good possibility that that throws the Republican nomination wide open and we start to see other candidates and we start to see a real debate about what the future of the party is actually going to be. Yeah. And of course, if we're thinking about crowded primaries in the past, you do have to think about Trump coming out in a pretty dominant fashion in the last one where it did look like every single prominent Republican figure was running for president and, uh, the least likely outcome from the jump was, in fact, the uh, television businessman that ended up president. So again, wide open here. It is interesting, I think, that uh, DeSantis, even though he has pulled some um, pretty dramatic stunts, the uh, Martha's Vineyard one comes to mind with sending uh, uh, migrants out to uh, an island without adequate information. Um, he represents a return to maybe a more traditional type of Republican candidate. He is the governor of a state. He's already, you know, pretty much in line with his party positions. So it is interesting to me to see even after Donald Trump was already president that there is at least a bit of interest in what you might call a more traditional Republican political figure in the race so far. But we will, of course, see if this ends like Jeb. Yeah, definitely. I mean, traditional in the sense, as you mentioned, of where you know, his resume, even if his position certainly wouldn't be familiar, you know, looking back a decade or two. Uh, but just a quick uh, look back at some of the other kind of early polls. Back in 2008, of course, we had Rudy Giuliani leading early. Um, you mentioned in 2016, we had everybody from, you know, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Scott Walker, all in there early on. You know, and then 2012 was the year where we had all these different candidates that had their moment. You know, they had like a wave of positive polling. Rick Perry, Rick Santoro, Michelle Bachman, Herman Cain, you know, all to Say that of course there's you know many many miles to go in this race but um just a very interesting dynamic that you know we haven't seen recently which is that the republican party may be looking elsewhere yeah well uh speaking of looking elsewhere let's look a little bit more local because uh we are here for apparently a reason today what what i i, I hear i don't know can't be confirmed steve can you confirm we're here for a reason <laughs> <laughs> we're podcasting best i can tell from the fact that i have a script open and audacity running on my computer uh, but specifically what are we doing here and i think the answer is lisa kashinsky is going to join us from dc to talk about women in the massachusetts state legislature then a bit later we're talking to sean cotter from the boston herald about residency requirements for boston city employees and why they may be changing soon so jen ready to ride let's go Two new Democratic women will join the legislature after recounts in two state rep races, though we're still a long way from gender parity in Massachusetts. So what do the numbers show and where do we go from here? Joining us for this segment, we also have our beloved co-host, Lisa Kaczynski. Lisa, start us off. Since we last talked, we have two new results. What happened? 
Well, first of all, hello from the district. Um, so we got the results in the past few days of two state representative races that were outstanding. And what happened is in the first Middlesex district, Margaret Scarsdale ended up leading Republican Andrew Shepard by seven votes after a recount. And in the North Shore's second Essex district, Democrat Kristen Kastner edged in five-term incumbent GOP state rep Lenny Mira by just one vote. And with that, that should bring the number of women in the legislature next session to 61 out of the 200 seats. So I guess the math on that one, if I pretended like I did it on the back of the napkin and wasn't just reading from the script with the actual percentage, means we're at about, what, 31% of our legislature made up of women? Uh, is that good? Is that bad compared to most of the country? Not is that good or bad from a moral reason? We can get into that later. It's about 30.5%, which is where it was in February at kind of the start of this wave of departures of women lawmakers that we saw this year in the state. Nationally, it's on par, but it's starting to fall a little bit behind after the results of this most recent election. So now there are two states, Colorado and Nevada, that have majority female legislatures, and at least six states will now, if starting in 2023, I should say, have at least one legislative chamber, either their House or Senate, that's majority female. The other thing that sticks out about the stats are reading from a Mass Inc. report where they looked at um, the percent of women in the Massachusetts state legislature going back to 2009 is that it's really barely moved. Like it's gone up a couple percentage points. You know, maybe it was at 28, 29 percent before and now it's at 30.5 or 31 percent, depending on the session and who's departed and all that sort of thing. But it really isn't moving at all. And, you know, the context on that as well is not only have our numbers not really changed much in terms of proportion, but exactly like you mentioned, Lisa, the rest of the country is not in the same level of stasis that we seem to be in here. So very slowly over time, even though we have seen slight tickings up of like one or two women entering the legislature at any given time, the rest of the country is kind of scooting further and further toward gender parity. So... When we think about the reasons that it might be particularly difficult for women to enter legislative chambers, as opposed to, of course, what we will talk about, which is which is general barriers to uh, non-incumbents entering uh, legislative chambers, what are we seeing for some of the bigger complicating factors? Well, I'll go back to February when I kind of first wrote about this. And um, what I was able to write about in Playbook this week was very much a sequel to or a follow-up to that is that you were seeing these women departing the legislature either to run for higher office, to seek other jobs, um, you know, in the Biden administration or something like that, um, or retiring after long careers. And the fear was that because of the pandemic, because of the strain on childcare, um, because of all of these other factors, um, you know, the people, you know, women advocates, political operatives were really afraid that women were not going to run this year for these open seats. And that was kind of the fear heading into this cycle is that, you know, the legislature had just hit this high watermark for women, which again was about 32%. It was 63, um, you know, after a couple special elections mid-session, 63 of the 200 seats um, were held by women. And they were just really afraid that because of, you know, the pandemic, the strain, um, you know, the issues with childcare, people starting to have to go back to work and juggling both again, um, that that was really going to deter people from running. 
And I think the uh, conclusion then, the follow-up there is, it didn't deter people from running to kind of hit where we already were, but it doesn't seem like there was some sort of, you know, wave of a bunch of new voices coming in to then like bring those numbers up. So so I think that's kind of where my head's at here, which is it's interesting that we didn't see kind of the stagnation in terms of there being a drop in seats that are held by women, but in a race where people have pointed to, for instance, the threat to Roe and other kinds of kind of uh, gender specific healthcare issues or gender equity issues, we didn't see a bump um, in in women running for office. So is there anything to kind of piece apart why that is? Why just, why does Massachusetts seem to love being at that one third of the legislature is women bar so much? Some part of it too is just the general competitiveness question that, you know, we've talked about not in the specific context, but in, just in the context of the lack of legislative turnover in general, you know, that Massachusetts just doesn't produce a lot of competition. You know, we have... I feel like we could probably play a compilation of me saying this, the least competitive legislative elections in the country right here in Massachusetts. We've had them in 2020. We had them, I think, in 2018 and 2016, you know, either the least or the second least, you know, going back for a bunch of sessions now. So, you know, if you want to elect somebody different, somebody to make the legislator more diverse in terms of race, somebody to bring us closer to gender parity, you need people to run and you need a landscape that permits people to run and gives them some realistic shot of winning. And that's just not something that we have here in Massachusetts. Well, and another thing, too, is that to run for the legislature here, it's every two years. I mean, you basically win, you legislate for a year, and then you're back to campaigning. And you contrast that with the four-year terms that you have for the statewide offices where we have seen, um, you know, kind of this increase in women running and winning these races with five of, you know, the state's six constitutional offices about to be held by women in January. So that's something, too. It's a lot of strain to have to run continuously, basically, um, you know, for these legislative positions. And one thing you mentioned in your write-up in Playbook was not just kind of the impact of Roe um, on people running for office, but also how redistricting factored into it. So how did the map look this year? Well, redistricting is one of the reasons that the second Essex race on the North Shore ended up the way that it did. Um, You know, Lenny Mira, the incumbent, had held that seat for five terms, and they drastically redid it in redistricting, which gave the Democrat an opening in a seat that had long been held by a Republican. You saw women who were able to win several of the newly created majority-minority districts, um, including in Brockton, Framingham, and Chelsea. Uh, So it definitely had a factor in helping elect women and also women of color. And so you kind of allude to it, but was there a party breakdown that we were seeing? You know, we've touched on the the fact in general that there's a much smaller representation for mass GOP electeds in the state of Massachusetts. Big surprise here. Um, but then when you're looking at kind of the gender balance, are these numbers of women mostly swelling on the Democratic side? In this year entirely, um, on the Democratic side, the number of Republicans in the legislature, I should say, well, both Republicans and Republican women in the legislature is shrinking. There is not a Republican uh, woman senator, um, and the number of female lawmakers in the House is declining. Um, and I believe I read this in State House News Service that out of the incoming class of lawmakers, there's only one Republican writ large. And Steve, you've uh, been doing a lot with the polling on this over the years. Uh, Has there been anything that's kind of 
indicated any sort of change to this trend or do we end up kind of bogged down in the kind of larger incumbency question, larger inertial question? Yeah, the polling doesn't necessarily show any particular, you know, impetus for change on this. I mean, election results tend to show that when there are open seats and, you know, there's candidates competing on equal footing, that very often women win those seats. And we see that we saw that in the statewide election results this year. Um, But just in terms of, you know, some sort of public urgency that's showing up at the polls, we don't see much kind of evidence of that at, at this moment. And that connects as well to kind of a broader question of, well, what is the case, for instance, for a more representative legislature, generally speaking? So Lisa, what's the response been from party leaders about this kind of, I I hesitate to say ballooning, you can't really say ballooning up to 30% again, but but this kind of uh, consistent maintenance of the, the gender ratio that we have in the legislature. And is there any discussion about, for instance, why this is something that maybe legislators would like to change, but not enough to really get into incumbency reform? Having more women and more you know, people with different backgrounds, more diversity, et cetera, at the table is always better for policymaking. I mean, we know that Massachusetts has been dominated by white men, um, you know, in kind of all levels of government. And the more, you know, diversity um, in in gender, in ethnicity, et cetera, that you can bring to the table, the more it informs the policymaking that, you know, governs everything from, you know, childcare to affordable housing, which is one of the biggest issues in the state right now. So people are really hopeful that, you know, increasing this diversity um, will help with that policy making to really address, um, you know, what's happening to various groups across the state. And it's also, people are hoping that it will break down kind of the stereotypes and, you know, as the Barbara Lee Family Foundation tends to put it, this quote, imagination barrier around women running for office and kind of erase some of these long held stereotypes in office. And even though it might not be increasing with the legislature. It is in other offices from, you know, the Boston mayor's office to the governor's office. This, the structures that that have built up around who gets elected and how often we have competitive seats, I think, just need to change. You know, and the problem or the challenge with that is that the people that need to change them are the ones that already have the power. You know, if you think about it in terms of there are like 200 points of power, 200 elected seats that are available, some of those that are held by men have to be given up. You know, there's no additional power that can be created to give out to people who don't already have it. So, you know, the the, both in terms of who's currently elected and then also other people and groups that, you know, hold on to power because they have relationships with those people also need to give up some portion of that comfort and some portion of that power. So thinking of people like interest groups who just reflexively endorse the incumbent, you know. If that's your practice, then you're contributing to structural racism and structural sexism. If you're a donor and you just give to incumbents, then that's also something that you're contributing to. I think oftentimes people recognize the goal of something closer to equality as worth striving for, but don't really want to take a hard examination of their own contribution to it and how the system that we have created basically guarantees it. You know, it it guarantees that this that this inequality is going to persist, um, and really gives a gives a difficult role to play to people who have power that they just must surrender some of it if they want anything closer to equality. 
All right, a depressing and moving note to end on from one Steve Cazella. Thank you so much, Lisa, for calling in from DC to walk us through this. Uh, again, I hesitate to describe it as any massive change, but uh, a, a maintenance of, of where we have been. Um, and uh, good luck out there. We're holding steady. As the cost of living rises in Boston, or I should say continues to rise in Boston, residency requirements for city employees are on the bargaining table. Here to talk to us about what that means, we're joined once again by our good friend Sean Cotter of the Boston Herald. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thanks for having me. So, start off easy. Currently, what are the general residency requirements to be hired by the city of Boston? So Boston has had a residency requirement on the books since the mid-70s, and that sort of softened for a lot of the unions in the late 2000s, dropping down to 10 years. For non-union city employees, it's an indefinite uh, hard requirement for many of the unions. It is that they have to live here for the first 10 years. And what's the rationale for that? What's the um, the reason why you'd want local employees living here in Boston? Well, the reason currently and the reason at the time of the inception of the law are probably slightly different. Um, the law at in the 70s came at a time when Boston was in the midst of a lot of turmoil, in the midst of desegregative busing that was going on, and... I believe, a uh, charter reform and shifting city council and and all that. And a lot of people were just leaving if they had the means to. Uh, Now we live in a very different Boston where uh, many people say we just don't have enough housing and you can't keep people away. But the advocates for residency requirements say, look, basically we want Boston to be run by people who live in Boston because it creates more cohesion between the government and the community. It means that the people who are implementing policies and enacting policies and creating the policies have to live with those policies and that they're more in touch with the city is the rationale. So how has that kind of softened or changed over time? It occurs to me this conversation happens sort of in conjunction with the very heated issue also with like resident preference for jobs and resources, this idea of Boston for this kind of idea of what Bostonians are and that Bostonians should be the ones in charge of governing Boston, but no one can afford to live here anymore. So so why is there a softening and what form has that taken? Well, going back to, I believe it was 2009 under uh, then Mayor Tom Menino, um, I think it was first one of the police unions negotiated that very firm residency requirement down to a 10-year version. And then because of the way most bargaining cycles go, then therefore that sort of ended up applying to everybody. I should note this doesn't apply to teachers who are just by state law exempt from residency requirements. Uh, then for the past 10 plus years after that, it very much sort of wasn't all that much of a discussion on the bargaining side. But now, as both the city tries to grapple with the fact that it's having a really hard time hiring for a lot of positions, and the unions, especially those with uh, members who make less money, um, they both want to 
take a look at it essentially um that is going to vary in form so like i just wanted to clear mayor michelle Wu does not want to get rid of residency um her state position is that residency is good to have but that she's sort of wants to get creative around the edges with it and different unions some unions are fine with it as is uh, some unions want to do something similar to what Wu's talking about in terms of like waivers and softening around the edges some want to cut down the time period and some just want to get rid of it entirely and you touched on what has become a hot button issue in this and in pretty much every other part of public policy these days, which of course is housing costs and the costs of actually living in Boston, you know, and the disconnection between that and what you're able to make as a public employee or, you know, in lots of areas of, of life these days. But how does that factor into the current negotiations? You're right, Steve. I mean, a lot of this is centered around the discussion around housing costs, because that is why some of these unions, again, especially those who represent people who are on the lower end of the wage scale, uh, think everything from like janitors to librarians to just sort of like administrative staff, cafeteria workers, 911 dispatchers, a lot of these like essential jobs that you need to have filled as the city from the city's perspective, they can't find anybody who wants to take these jobs and also live in Boston uh, because they don't, they frankly, pay enough money for somebody to just have that job. And uh, especially if you're trying to like have a family or something, live in Boston. And the unions, therefore, that represent these positions are, their members who are currently in those positions want more freedom to not live in Boston and also continue working these jobs. So what's the finagling looking like kind of against changes to the residency requirements? Uh, I couldn't help myself. I have to bring up that there is the Dorchester connection of uh, Eileen Boyle, who has been working with the, I think it's Save Our City Coalition. Um, that kind of goes back to the early to mid 2000s in terms of this opposition to changes to the residency requirements and to stay on the issue of housing, what really struck me in your article was that Eileen was specifically saying it's the city's job to get more creative with housing. Don't change the rules around residency. Make sure that people can actually live here. So what is the balance right now that Wu is considering, that the city councilors might be pushing for in terms of where the city's primary role is? Is it in changing the rules but keeping the city of Boston a pretty difficult place to find either available or affordable housing in and maybe messing around the edges there? Or is it keep the residency requirements with a few waivers but really kind of put all of your muscle behind making sure that generally speaking there's more available and more affordable housing yeah i mean i think everybody agrees that boston is an expensive place to live i don't think i'm editorializing too much with the, with that take um and so people are sort of broadly sympathetic to that as a concept. But uh, the way to deal with that, is, as you identify, looks different to different people, where somebody like Eileen, who you're correct, uh, Save Our City is the organization, and they, they've been around since, they, I think, a lot of the residency arguments of the 2000s. Um, 
for her and other people who really prioritized residency as sort of a very important intrinsic good, um, they say residency is not something to be really touched in general. There have been specific areas in which people broadly have said, yeah, we're fine waving uh, residency for certain jobs like arborists. We don't have a lot of arborists in the city of Boston. It's a city. Not a lot of tree people live here. And so uh, that was something where everybody said, yeah, we, we get it. Like we can look outside the city for arborists. But in general, uh, the residency purists will say there is a problem with affordability in Boston, but the way to tackle it is through housing. I mean, Eileen, when I interviewed her, she suggested the city even like setting up temporary housing units for city workers, like at the uh, at the Hotel on Morrissey Boulevard, they're talking about having be uh, supportive housing. <laughs> she suggested, how about that? Um, and so like those sorts of ideas are things that people put forward. Wu is, she's already sought some waivers for jobs such as the aforementioned arborists, but also three-year waivers for lower wage jobs, including cafeteria workers, 911 call center workers, uh, bus drivers, like those sorts of jobs that really don't pay very well, but you sort of got to have them. And if the, if nobody's in them, then like that things go wrong. <laughs> and so, um, so that's sort of where things are at now is that the mayor is entering these sorts of waivers. Oh, another recent one was for new police officers. They get a bit like a six month grace period. Uh, and that's an effort to recruit essentially poach police officers from other cities and towns, because those places also usually have residency requirements. So that means that technically on one day you're required to live in one place and the next day you're required to live in another place. And that's just sort of like a logistical issue. And so the Wu administration proposed and the Residency Compliance Commission granted uh, that sort of extended grace period. And then after that six months, then, then residency applies and they got to live here. So there's a lot of um, different kind of dynamics pulling in, in every direction, really. But one thing that seems unlikely to change in the very short term is housing prices aren't suddenly going to crash to the level where, you know, a relatively low paid municipal employee is going to be able to afford to just move to Boston. So what is next? What where do we go from here and what should we be on the lookout for? I think a lot of people would like to know the answer to that question. <laughs> Housing prices continue to be a huge issue here. A lot of people have a lot of different takes, uh, much like the residency, the related residency issue about what to do about the price of housing. The Wu administration and her allies say that building tons of uh, quote unquote, like affordable and quote unquote workforce housing, essentially income restricted housing for people who either don't make very much money or make like the area median income or something like that is a good way to handle it. Other people, I mean, like the the governor, Charlie Baker, had that bill about um, just sort of making it easier to change zoning laws in a lot of the surrounding cities and towns in an effort to loosen zoning. Um, I don't, I can't speak as well to statewide politics as I can to city Boston politics, but 
I know that like these different types of approaches, both the sort of, I mean, I think that can be characterized as sort of like the the letting the free market go and try to solve the problem versus like a very sort of city driven, um, like affordable housing push or some combination thereof. Those are all things that people talk about. In Boston, we are seeing a lot more housing built and a lot more affordable housing required in each big housing development. At least that's sort of the goal of a lot of the uh, advocates and the administration. And so I guess we'll see. All right. Well, uh, looking forward to any developments on that front. Uh, it was interesting uh, in your write-up on it. Uh, a few of the city councilors have indicated that, you know, messing around with the residency requirements is, I think Kenzie Bach put it as a lever that we can pull. So uh, watching what happens on the council, watching what happens in the mayor's office, watching what happens at the collective bargaining table. But uh, as that all rolls out, Sean Cotter of the Boston Herald, thank you so much for joining us today to talk us through residency. Thank you all very much. And for our final segment today, we're checking in with the AI chatbots, which have had their faceless minds turned to the impenetrable world of Boston politics and Boston in general. There's been a Boston Globe article produced. We've asked us to write us a podcast script, which we're definitely not going to read for you here on the air. Jokes, all sorts of things. Jen, what do we have? Okay, well, what I have is an overriding sense of concern that this chatbot seems to think that Bostonians are a bunch of enjoyable, whimsical, happy people. And I'm just, you know, I don't really think we have much to fear right now about them replacing all of us in the analysis market if they genuinely think Bostonians are happy. That's right. I, I asked it write a speech about Boston, and it gave a bunch of platitudes about rich history and a vibrant present, which actually could have been read by <laughs> a number of <laughs> leading luminaries in Boston. But then it got to the crux of its piece, which was as follows. But what really sets Boston apart is its people. The residents of this city are known for their warmth and friendliness, <laughs> as well as their fierce pride in their city. Okay. Fierce pride in their city? Definitely. Definitely. Almost to a fault. But warmth and friendliness? I mean... Oh. I'm kind of offended. <laughs> Are you yeah. offended, Jen? A little bit. I think one of the things that I really got a kick out of when I first moved to Boston now more than 10 years ago is that uh, one side of the country always thinks that New York is like the meanest place on earth. And I don't know, maybe they'll nod to you or something on a New York subway and then you immediately avert your gaze. But I just... As happy as people are about the Green Line extension, this is a city that famously reacted to the mayor suggesting that someone might chat with her on a train with, how dare you, don't look at me, don't talk to me, I'm not here to communicate with other human beings. Warmth and friendliness, I ask you. Yes, definitely not. Super offended, probably going to file a lawsuit at some point if we can figure out how to file against an AI bot. We also asked it, write a joke about Boston, and here's what it came up with. Why was the math book sad? Because it had too many problems. But then it moved to Boston and became a Red Sox fan, and now it's happy all the time. <laughs> That's the joke that the chatbot came up with. Okay, hear me out. This is actually a really, really deep thing that it's doing. It knows that the joke is that we're unhappy. Got it. It's like it's one of those ones that's like, tell me a bad joke to make yeah. me laugh because the joke is so bad. Yeah. Because I, that's the only that's the only punchline I can see here. Amazing. <laughs> all right. Well, unfortunately, for those of us who would like to just read chatbot scripts all day, that is all the time we have for this year podcast. 
I'm Steve Kazella signing off with Lisa Kaczynski and Jennifer Smith. Our producer, as always, is Elena Eberwine. Don't forget to give The Horse Race a review wherever you're listening to us now. Subscribe to the Massachusetts Political Playbook if somehow you've not already done so. And reach out to us here at the Massing Polling Group if you need either polls or focus groups. For now, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week.